You're listening to The Seventh, Jesus' Words to His Church, a new sermon series by Crosspoint Peachtree City. For more information, please visit us at www.crosspointptc.com. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Revelation chapter 2. We'll be in verses 12 through 17 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under one of the seats nearby in the row in front of you. There's some baskets uh, underneath the chairs, and you can grab one of those Bibles and open up to the book of Revelation. It's the last book in the Bible, so uh, near the back cover. And if you don't have a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, take that Bible home with you as the church's gift to you. We'd, we'd love to know that you're exploring the truth claims of Christianity on your own time, and so we want you to have that. Let me read this morning's passage, and we'll pray, and we'll jump in and get to work. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, says this, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write this, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Verse 16, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon in war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray. God, we love you. We love your word. We submit to the truth of the scriptures this morning. We submit to this red letter text, which means that it came from your mouth, Jesus. We submit to you as king, so I pray that as we unpack this morning's text, that we would find ourselves more and more in glad submission to who you are and that you would make us a people who walk in both truth and love fully as we see our, our good King Jesus uh, do in the scriptures. Uh, would, you, would you change us? Would you conform us more, God, into the image of your Son? We lift these things up to you, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so for the last couple weeks, I've tried to give you a little bit of background on the various cities that we're looking at week in and week out. And so this week, we're taking a look at the church in Pergamum. Verse 12 says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write these things. Pergamum, similar to Smyrna last week, has no reference in the New Testament other than this letter. And then you get the list of the seven churches back in chapter 1. That's the only time we see Pergamum in the scriptures themselves. Um, But we do know some things about Pergamum. We know that Pergamum was the capital of Asia at the time, so it was the the Washington, D.C. of Asia, you might say, if that helps you. Um, That the population was just a little under 200,000. So in terms of cities nearby that might help you to to get your mind around the size of the city, Knoxville has a similar population. Chattanooga, Savannah, if you've been to any of those cities, uh, you're looking at a similar population to the city of Pergamum. Um, this is interesting, had a library that was so impressive that Mark Antony offered it to Cleopatra as a gift. 200,000 works in this library in the first century when there was no printing press. Massive. In fact, the word parchment is derived from the very uh, name of the city, Pergamum, itself. 
had a political allegiance similar to that of Smyrna. Going back to last week, Smyrna was committed to Rome and her emperor. That We know that uh, Pergamum was home to the first ever temple built in honor of a living emperor, uh, namely the emperor Augustus. And so, essentially, you didn't have to die in order to be recognized as a god in Pergamum as a Roman emperor. Smyrna followed Pergamum's lead. Um, the temple to Tiberius, going back to last week, followed this temple built to Augustus. So if, if you go back to last week's sermon and you listen in and you, and you were able to pick up on the fact that Smyrna was deeply committed to Caesar as Lord, just exponentially increase that, and that's the city of, of Pergamum. And yet there was also religious allegiance. They worshipped the Greek gods Zeus, Demeter, Persephone, and Asclepius. It was home to a temple dedicated to Egyptian gods as well. So you had uh, a layering of, of religious beliefs and, and worship of, of gods of, of various backgrounds uh, in the city of, of Pergamum. And, and on top of that, Rome and, and her emperor. So there was religious allegiance and political allegiance. Jesus says in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Right? If, if you think about it, um, there are a lot of cities in, in our country and across the world that have been given nicknames, right? Chicago is known as the Windy City. New Orleans is known as the Big Easy. Philadelphia is known as the City of Brotherly Love. Here in Peachtree City, we're known as the Bubble, right? And Pergamum is known as Satan's Throne, right? That's where you want to live, right? It, it, of, of all the places, you pull into the city limits and you have, welcome to Peachtree City, the city where Satan dwells. Like, can you imagine if that was the, the welcoming sign or uh, enjoy your devil of a stay or fill in the blank with whatever, like, whatever you want to say. Nobody wants to live where Satan's throne is present, right? And yet the city of Pergamum was known as the place where Satan's throne existed. Now, there are a few theories as to, to where that comes from. I'll give you some of those. One is that the altar of Zeus existed there, that behind Pergamum was a massive hill on which sat numerous temples and shrines dedicated to, to various pagan gods. And one of the most impressive of those was a massive altar built to Zeus, which was visible for all in the city to see up on this, this hill uh, behind the city. There's actually a, a reconstruction of this altar that can be found at the Pergamum Museum in Berlin. And you can see a picture of it up on the screen. It kind of looks like a throne, right? It looks like you got the armrest for the king to sit and rest his, his arms. There's kind of this visible um, idea of a throne. Apparently, um, all day long in the city of Pergamum, you could look up onto this hill and see smoke rising up from the altar as people offered sacrifices to Zeus and these various other gods. So you couldn't live in, in Pergamum and not see the smoke rising to the glory of false gods. So when you, when you look at that and get an, get an idea of the image in your mind, you can see how um, some may have seen it to be a, a great throne of, of pagan worship and could have deemed it to be Satan's throne. Um, another possibility is that the, the sanctuary of the Greek god Asclepius existed in the city of Pergamum. Um, this sanctuary was a healing center that contained healing pools for um, both the sick and the diseased. Um, here's an image up on the screen of the Greek god Asclepius. You can see he has a staff, and, and around that staff is wrapped a, a serpent. The, the emblem of Asclepius himself is the serpent. Like, th this is mind-blowing to me because I'm so freaked out by snakes and various amphibians and reptiles. 
So we went to the zoo um, to take Lanier. It was part of her birthday gift. Uh, was she got zoo passes, and we took her, and we skipped the uh, creepy, slimy, spectacular, or whatever it's called that's the new exhibit. Because I'm just not a fan of creepy, crawly things. But in, in the sanctuary of Asclepius, catch this. The sick and disease would spend the night in that temple, and, and it was pitch black dark on the inside. They would close up the windows so that you couldn't see anything and would release tame snakes to make their way through the temple at night. And the goal was not to avoid them, but rather to have them actually brush up, brush up against you and touch you because it was believed that if one of the snakes touched the sick or diseased person, that he or she would be healed. That the touch of the snake was believed to be the touch of the God himself incarnate in the serpent. How crazy is that? you got to be pretty desperate to be healed in order to, to go at it that way, right? Now let me ask you, what biblical scene comes to mind for Christians when you think of the, the symbol of the serpent? Genesis 3, right? The fall of man. When, when you think of the symbol of the serpent, you think of everything in human history coming unraveled if you're a Christian. You think about sin entering the world through the deception of Satan and, and the desire of our first parents to be like God and suffering and death following suit as a curse for sin. Like That's what comes to mind when you think of the serpent. There, there's, no, there's no good um, idea in mind for the Christian when the, when the image of the serpent comes to mind. In fact, Jesus in the New Testament, in the Gospels, we see him uh, at one point even calling the Pharisees serpents a brood of vipers, he, he refers to them as. And so it's possible that when you get this image in your mind of snakes just on the prowl in the midst of this sanctuary that's meant to bring healing in the name of a Greek god, that it's quite possible that that place would then be called Satan's throne. And then very simply, you have great allegiance to, to Caesar as Lord. That again, this was the home of the first ever temple built in honor of a living emperor, a man that still had breath in his lungs. That this, this city was the leader of the pack in Caesar worship. That we talked about this last week, Caesar and Jesus can't both be Lord. Not for the Christian and not for the, the Roman either. And so in the midst of this, uh, Jesus says that this is the place where Satan's throne is located. That uh, this word throne comes from the Greek word thronos, which literally means a seat of special authority or a dominion. And so we're not talking about just a place where Satan resides, where he has a summer home. We're, we're talking a place where Satan wielded much authority and power in this city, that the Pergamum landscape was one in which it was clear that, going back to Romans 1, that people had exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Can you imagine living in this city? Jesus says in verse 13, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, now this is fascinating to me because this very phrase, this five-word phrase, I know where you dwell, communicates a couple of things that are very important. One, Jesus has an intimate knowledge of our surrounding subculture, that he's not oblivious to the things that you face as a Christian, to the things that I face as a Christian, that Jesus is fully aware for us that we live in a hyper-churched, under-gospel subculture, and that means that we're in a dogfight for biblical Christianity in the land of cultural Christianity, that Jesus is aware that we live in the land of pretenses, in, in the land of external appearances, in the land uh, where everyone is a multi-layered onion that you have to peel back the layers to get to the real person underneath all of that. And so he knows that we're in a dogfight to establish a culture of vulnerability. 
a culture of confession, a culture of repentance, a culture of weakness, a culture of honesty. He's, he's aware that we face the pressures of abandoning the gospel for performance-based righteousness. Jesus is aware that we live in a land drunken on pop culture, that we could just as easily sing the words, if pop culture is an ocean, we're all sinking. That he's aware of the constant pressure on the church to abandon the truth in the name of love or to abandon love in the name of truth. That we're, we're in a fight for all of these things in the world in which we live. That Jesus knows he isn't oblivious to, to the world that surrounds you, to the pressures that you experience in the midst of you trying to see culture transformed and redeemed for the glory of God. So here would be a question for us this morning. In, in what ways do you see Satan specifically at work in our culture? And, and you can take that on any level. Our community, Peachtree City specifically, the surrounding areas, um, the city of Atlanta at large, the, the southeast, our, our country. Where do you see Satan specifically at work in our culture? Um, one of my favorite books, which is kind of odd because it has a creepy kind of undertone, kind of like the bumper video that, that you just watched, is a book called The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. And if you've ever read this, the, the premise is a, a demon by the name of Screwtape writes letters to uh, his nephew and apprentice, a demon by the name of Wormwood, who's new to the game. And he instructs him on, on how to lead people astray, on how to lead people down a path of destruction. And as I read that book, those particular letters, it's mind-boggling to think about some of the subtle ways that Satan can work in our, in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts, in our culture. But it brought the question to me, what kind of letters would Screwtape write to Wormwood if he had our community in mind? What would that look like? And, and I'm not going to answer that one this morning for us. I, I, I want to leave that with you to sit with. If Satan were writing a letter to his army of darkness to say, here's how you can go about attacking the people in this area of the world. What would he say? What do you think he would, he would say? Jesus knows exactly what he would say. And Jesus has crushed the serpent's head by way of the cross. And Jesus knows exactly what we're going through. And here's what's even more mind-boggling. Not only does he know, but he purposes our being where we are in human history, in the very world that you find yourself immersed in, that um, there are two Greek words that can be translated as this word dwell in verse 13. And one of those is a word that means to dwell as a stranger, as a sojourner, um, in a temporary residence, you might say, a passerby. But that's not the word Jesus uses here that we translate as the word dwell. Jesus uses the other word, which means to dwell as a resident in a permanent settled place. That what Jesus is essentially saying is, hey guys, Satan's on the prowl, but you can't go somewhere else where it's easier to be a Christian. That's crazy. William Barclay says this. He says, the Christian aim is not to escape from a situation, but conquest of it. When I moved back in 2010, me and my wife, Brooks, we moved down to Orlando and uh, at the time, I wouldn't have told you this, but I'll tell you this now. As we're driving in the car, I'm doing one of these. Like, yes, we're out. Like, we're gone from the Bible Belt forever. And, and I told her, we're not living any further north than Orlando. 
Like, if we're going to move ever again, we're going to move further south into the state of Florida, which means that culturally you're moving further north, right, if you, if you understand the state of Florida at all. And so my goal was we can live in Orlando, which is kind of on the fringes of the Bible Belt. You still get a, a little bit of a, a, a salting of the Bible Belt there, but we're not moving any further north. And over the course of five years, God began to completely train wreck my game plan and began to do some work on my heart and began to replace this reactionary anger and frustration with with this proactive, here's what I'm for, Jamie. Here's what I'd like to see happen in, in that land where there are churches everywhere and yet the gospel presence is very, very low. Here's what I'd like to see conquest look like. In, in the heart of the South, in the heart of the Bible Belt, what's now been deemed the boneyard of Christianity, where the church is on decline and you can't even see it because there are buildings everywhere. And so Jesus called us back. He said, you can't escape. You can be a part of a conquest if you want to. And that would be the call for all of us in this room. My prayer is that you would press in and that you would be a part of the conquest of the gospel in this place, in this city, in the surrounding areas, that we would see the gospel go forth and see people redeemed from both religion and irreligion to the person and work of Jesus. The Gerasene demoniac um, has a similar story. Um, I relate to this guy on one level, which is the level that I just shared with you. He wanted to get away and he didn't get to. Other than that, this guy is nuts. He's, he's one of my favorite uh, characters in all of the Gospels. I love this story. It's insane. Jesus and his boys get off the boat, and the first thing they encounter is this man who's demon-possessed. He's in a graveyard, shackled, and cutting himself with stones. Right? You just envision that, that image that all of a sudden you want to turn the movie off, right? You're creeped out. You're not going to sleep tonight. And Jesus encounters this guy. He engages him and, and effortlessly casts these demons out into a herd of pigs that then go run off and drown themselves. And it's just a really cool story, and you should read it if you never have before. The man is set in his right mind because he has encountered the living Jesus. And, and listen to this. We're told in Mark chapter 5, verse 18, and moving forward, And as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. You can just imagine this guy, Jesus, you've saved me. I want to be in the boat with you. I want to do Bible study with you every day. I want to hang out with you. Like that would be the easy life, the easy way to go. And Jesus says, that's not what I have for you. I want you to go back to the hard place. I want you to go back to the people that cast you out of the city and shackled you in a graveyard of all places because they thought that was the best idea for how to handle you. And I want you to tell them everything that I've done for you. And we're told that he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. And we know that everyone marveled because if you fast forward the story to Mark chapter 7, Jesus enters into the area of the Decapolis again. And this time, he doesn't have to send out to the people. The people come to him. Because this man has truly lived as an evangelist, telling people about who Jesus is and what he's done for him. And the people come flocking to Jesus as a result of this man staying in the hard place. Like the garrison demoniac, God has positioned every one of us in this room for his glory with great purpose. We see it in Acts chapter 17, verse 26, where we're told 
God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. That God has positioned you perfectly like the moon to reflect the sun's light. That you, you have been purposefully put where you are so that you can reflect the glory of God revealed in the face of Christ Jesus in ways that no one else can, can do that. Like, I, I don't work in your workplace. I don't live in, in your neighborhood. I don't think if we're neighbors, we should talk after this because I don't know that at this point. But, but we're, we're all in places that are different from one another with great purpose so that we can reach people for the glory of God and point them to the person and work of Jesus. So I'd ask you this morning to consider how has God uniquely established you where you are and how might he leverage you? How might he spend you for his glory, even when it's hard? That, that he knows what you're going through, and yet he purposes it so that more people might come to know him. Jesus goes on in verse 13 to say, um, I have some things to commend you on. He says, you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. That There are a couple things here. One, these people were genuinely clinging to, to Jesus. They were clinging to Christ, that, that they had deep affections for Jesus. He says, you hold fast to my name, that that... That language in the Greek means you haven't lost your grip on me in the midst of surrounding pressures. You're actually clinging to me. Psalm 63, 8 says, my soul clings to you, Lord. Your, your right hand upholds me. Now, this would be a question for us, I think, that would um, be a bit diagnostic in nature. And it's this, and it's not a fair question, it's a loaded one. Do you encounter moments when it's not so much clinging to but rather loosely embracing your Christianity. And if we're honest, I think we would all say yes. And the, the better question would be, what does that look like for you? What do those moments look like? Is it, is it doctrinal? Is it theological in nature? Is it biblical in nature that, that you just loosen your grip on certain truths that you find in the scriptures and don't allow the fullness of the scriptures to be authoritative? Is it affection? Is it that you, you know all your stuff, sound doctrine is there, but, but there's a loosening of your grip when it comes to clinging to Jesus with the, the depths of your affection so that everything stays in your head and doesn't work its way down functionally into your heart? into the seat of your affections? Or, or is it a loose embracing of Christianity when it's hard, when, it, when it's time to get your hands dirty for the kingdom of God to be spent for his glory? What, is it, what does it look like for you to, to loosen your grip? And then another question would be, what do you hold fast to with white-knuckled fists when it's not Jesus? What are those things that, that you cling to that you think, if I let my grip go on this, I don't want to live anymore because I can't live without blank? And then what might it look like to loosen your grip on everything else so that you might tighten your grip on Jesus? These people had a tight grip on Jesus. They were clinging to him in the midst of great persecution. And not only that, they were authenticating belief. Jesus says, you did not deny my faith. In other words, you're not a walking contradiction. You're not saying that you believe one thing and then living um, completely counterintuitive to everything that you're saying that you believe. And, and you're even exercising trust um, in, in a certain hour of persecution. It's not just theoretical. Like for some of us, we'd go, yeah, I'm not a walking contradiction, but at the same time, no one's holding a gun to my head. And yet in this context, people chose not to contradict what they said they believed in the midst of the threat of martyrdom. So that we see that um, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, you, you didn't turn astray. Legend tells us, and this is absurd, that Antipas was killed by being roasted to death. That's a horrific way to die. 
He was committed to reserving the name Savior and Lord for Jesus alone, not Caesar. Now, it'd be very easy for us to say, I've never professed Caesar or anything else to be Lord with my lips. But I do think we live in a place in which functional saviors rule the day. And so what happens is we determine what it is that we need to escape, what what would be our version of a personal hell, and then we pursue the functional savior that we think can lift us up out of the depths to rescue us. And though we may not profess that thing to be Lord with our lips, whatever, whoever that is, functions as Caesar in our lives. So my question for you would be, what is that? Is it, is it a job? Is it family? Is it intellect? Is it money? Is it politics? Is it pop culture? Is it religion? Is it relationships? Is it self-image that we could go on for, for hours here just listening out the possibilities of things that we trust in other than Jesus to rescue us at the end of the day? Jesus says, these people are not only clinging to me, but, but they're not um, contradicting what they say they believe by, um, by turning to other saviors, other Caesars of the day. Now, there's much to be commended there, Right? I mean, I want to be a person who clings to Jesus. I want to be a person who is not a walking contradiction to everything that I say that I believe, knowing that we're all works in progress, but I just don't want to be a blatant contradiction to the gospel everywhere I go. Jesus affirms some really good things here. But in verse 14, he says this. He says, there's some things to correct here as well. He says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to uh, idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. That essentially this is what was unfolding in the city of Pergamum. Error was leading to evil. That false teaching was creeping in, even in the midst of many people in the church clinging to the truth, clinging to Jesus himself with great affection. They were allowing false teaching to creep in, and they weren't doing anything about it. And uh, by way of error, when your theology is off, it's going to lead you to live differently. And so error was leading to evil. You see, the error piece with respect to Jesus' statement uh, where he talks about the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, what does that mean? If you go back to Numbers chapter 22, um, you get the story of Balak, the king of Moab, who calls on this freelance prophet by the name of Balaam to curse the Israelites. The Israelites are on the way into the promised land, and the Moabites feel very threatened by their presence. There are a great number of Israelites, and so the king hires Balaam to curse the Israelites. Now, Here's what's cool. The plan fails because God's the only sovereign, and every time Balaam goes to open his mouth to curse the Israelites, God puts into his mouth a blessing to speak on the Israelites over and over and over again. Balak gets angry and frustrated. Um, The Moabites go about another strategy. And so Balaam tells King Balak to have the Moabite women seduce the Israelite men by inviting them to participate in idolatrous and immoral feasts. So you have sexual immorality and idolatry now rampant among the Israelite population. Jesus says there's something like that going on here. And then he brings up the teaching of the Nicolaitans. These are the modern-day Balaams of the church in Pergamum. Remember, we talked about these guys a couple weeks ago, if you were here. Um, These guys were teaching that, hey, if you've got grace, you can do whatever you want to. You can just abuse the blood of Jesus. You can walk all over it, because guess what? He has to forgive you in the end anyway. It's what Paul refutes in Romans 6, where he's unpacked the gospel 
And then he says, so does that mean we can just sin all the more so that grace may abound? And he says, by no means, that if you've really encountered the, the grace of God through the cross of Jesus Christ, that doesn't afford you a license to just live however you want. That actually compels you to live in a way that honors the king who has rescued you. But Paul says it this way in Galatians 5.13. He says, you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. That the Nicolaitans were perverting the grace of God. And we're told that the church in Ephesus, going back a couple weeks ago, were opposed to this false teaching that had crept into the church. But the church of Pergamum was allowing this false teaching to remain, and it was leading people astray. That the church in Ephesus, again, I said it before, was sacrificing love on the altar of truth, and Jesus rebukes them for that. Meanwhile, the church in Pergamum sacrificed truth on the altar of love, and Jesus rebukes them as well. That just as truth cannot win when divorced from love, so love cannot win when divorced from truth. That to sacrifice one on the altar of the other is an exercise in futility, Jesus would say. John Stott says it this way. He says, love becomes sentimental if it is not strengthened by truth. And truth becomes hard if it is not softened by love. And I think the danger is for us to err into one of these ditches. And the church has been doing it for a couple thousand years. It's it's a constant balancing act. We're standing on a spinning top trying to do this well. And and the goal is not to be 50% truth, 50% love. It's to be all in in both. That's the hope of, of the church. As we look to Jesus, who was all in. He was full of love, full of truth, full of grace. He didn't abandon one for the other. The church in Pergamum was to some degree, and as a result, you, you see two evils creep into the church. They were eating food sacrificed to idols, and they were practicing sexual immorality. Um, it's really interesting. The issues that the Israelites experienced back in the Old Testament in the days of Balaam and, and Balak are the same issues that the church in Pergamum faced, and they're the same issues that we face today. That Pergamum was a land of temple worship. If you look at at this piece of um, eating food sacrificed to idols, um, in Pergamum what would happen, similar to the the Israelite sacrifices, um, some of the animal would be sacrificed, some would be given to the priest, and then much of it would be given back to the worshiper. And then what would happen is the worshiper would throw a party for his friends in the very temple of that God and would invite his friends in to be a part of that. And so you get a visual of people taking communion, essentially, in the temple of their God. They're taking of the sacrament. This happened in the church in Corinth. If you go back and read the book of 1 Corinthians, and it begs the question, right? How, how could a Christian partake in the sacrament of a false god? But I think the reality for us is, if we're honest, can, can we just say that we've all um, gotten intimately close to other lovers at times, quote unquote? Can we all be honest and say we've put our lips to the, to the cup in some way? that we've communed with things other than Jesus in a way that would say that those things are ultimate rather, rather than him. That you see this in Pergamum, you see this in our culture. The, the sexual immorality piece, same deal. It was the cultural norm in Pergamum. It was expected, actually. Look, look at these couple of quotes that uh, you get from uh, a couple of bigwig guys that, uh, whose names are very difficult to pronounce. Demosthenes was one of the, the great ancient Greek orators, and he said this. He said, we have courtesans, which is a, just a fancy word for prostitutes, for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation, and we have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and of having a faithful guardian of our household affairs. That, that, was, the, that was the way people thought. 
in Greco-Roman subculture in the first century. Cicero, the ancient Roman philosopher and politician, said it this way, I'm not able to deny the principle, uh, this idea uh, that uh, we should be forbidden the love of prostitutes. He says, but the person who denies that is at variance, not only with the license of what our own age allows, but also with the customs and concessions of our ancestors. In other words, it's just what you do. Like the culture says, this is how it goes. We all have urges. It's not hurting anyone. It is what it is. To refer to anything as sexually immoral is to be a buzzkill in Pergamum. And the same thing is true in our society. The mentality is, what's the problem with having a harem of women as long as they're on a computer screen digitally? Or you can't expect me to be faithful to one woman or man for a lifetime. Seriously, there are a lot of women and men out there to choose from. Or we love each other. Feels good, so it can't possibly be wrong. We're not very different. We, we haven't uh, come so far along that we've somehow left behind the errors of, of history behind us. From heterosexual infidelity to homosexuality to pornography to premarital sensuality, anything goes, and to say otherwise is to be intolerant and narrow-minded in our culture. The cry of some of those in the church in Pergamum was, it's no big deal, it's culturally normal, so go for it. Culture is the dog that wags the tail of truth when it should be the exact opposite. What had happened was uh, the, the church in Pergamum, for all the things that Jesus commends her for, had become syncretistic in nature. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. There are two great errors in the history of the church. Um, one is the error of separatism, which would say that the church is against culture. And so the church so opposes culture that she loses her her relevance. The other error would be syncretism, not the church against culture, but the church of culture, that, that the church so embraces the culture that there is no distinguishing mark about her anymore. If you use the language of um, salt-preserving meat, the idea would be that the separatist just functions on the shelf, never gets rubbed into the meat. The, the salt's no good if it stays on the shelf. It can't preserve the meat if it's not rubbed into it, whereas the syncretist would no longer function as salt. They'd be rubbed in so much that they would become the meat. There's no distinguishing mark there. And, and oftentimes it's a pendulum swing. Usually the church will look at, um, at, at one error and respond to it with the exact opposite error. And so in our context, in the Bible Belt context, we look at legalism, and, and we don't like that, and so we respond with license. We say that must be the right approach. Or we respond to the separatism, the holy huddle mentality of the country club church, and we determine that the, the response to that is now to swing the pendulum into the other ditch and become the syncretistic church that just adopts everything and anything that we see in culture with no sort of ability to sift or, or think about it. And so one of my great fears for, um, for our church and for young churches all over our country is that uh, we might become the church that flaunts our liberty like a clown as a response to, to legalism, as a response to separatism, that, that it would just become anything goes. We don't even submit to the authority of the scriptures anymore. We just do whatever it looks like the culture would affirm us to do. That way, we don't have to deal with any sort of language of, in, of intolerance, um, of, of bigotry. Um, that way, we, we remain safe and sound, and we can continue to, uh, over the course of time, attempt to make some, some headway. Our cry becomes, I'm not going to be like the religious neatniks of the world, and neither should you. So live however you want. At least you're not a Pharisee like most everyone in the Bible Belt. 
And that's what you see going on to some degree in Pergamum. Because after all, Jesus will forgive you anyway. So just do whatever you want, man. And let me say this. If, if I don't say anything else that's heard this morning, erring on the side of license is no less foolish, no less childish, no less immature than erring on the side of legalism. That both communicate in arrogance. That one says, uh, one is arrogant enough to add to the Bible to determine that the Bible's not quite enough, so we need to make up more and more rules and regulations that we can abide by that make us look good in the eyes of God. But the other is arrogant enough to take away from the Bible, to say that there are just some verses that shouldn't be there. And so I'm going to proverbially rip those out. may not actually take my hands to the Scriptures and start tearing, but, but from a mind and heart standpoint, I'm, I'm going to pretend like those don't exist. I think the question for us is the same as the question for, for Pergamum. Uh, Are you embracing the sins of the culture, maybe even leading others in the church to embrace those sins? Or are you in a dogfight for Christian truth and holiness? And not just your holiness, but the holiness of others in the church. Because there's a third way. You don't have to go the way of syncretism or separatism. You can go the gospel way, which is the church not against culture or of culture, but the church transforming culture. That the church embraces culture in a way to transform it for the glory of God. That the salt gets rubbed into the meat without becoming indistinguishable from the meat itself. So that, so that it can actually preserve the meat. So my prayer for us is that we would not be the legalistic church, but that we would also not be the licentious church that flaunts her liberty like a clown. That we would not be the syncretistic church nor the separatist church. That we would be the church who who doesn't sacrifice love on the altar of truth or truth on the altar of love, but stands for both with with great vigor and passion. Because Jesus says in verse 16, he says, to the church that abandons truth and allows people to be led from error into evil, he says, if you don't repent, I will come to you soon and wage war against you with the sword of my mouth, the sharp two-edged sword, if you go back to verse 12 that Jesus isn't happy about the church that functions this way, that the sword is the word of God protruding from his mouth. Not literally, Jesus doesn't have a weapon coming forth from his lips. This is a a symbol uh, of, of truth that's coming forth from the mouth of Jesus And it cuts both ways. It's referred to as a two-edged sword. And so it functions as life to some and as death to others. That uh, Sam Storm says it this way in his commentary. He says, on the one hand, this sword, the word of God, the truth of God, has the power to perform the most delicate of spiritual surgery, to excise the cancer of sin and restore hope to the wounded soul. Its razor's edge cuts away the disease of error in those who long for truth. It's what Hebrews 4.12 says. Many of you know this verse, that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That the Bible functions that way for many who submit themselves to the truth of Scripture. But Storms goes on to say that the other side of this two-edged sword works this way. He says, To those who deny its authority or acknowledge its presence but mock its power and purity, it is the means by which they will be called to account. The other side of the two-edged sword cuts away all excuses, identifies all sin, exposes the secrets of the soul, pronounces a just verdict, and issues and enforces an eternal sentence. That for some, the truth of God's word is the aroma of life, and for others, it's the stench of death. Reminds me of the old saying of the Puritans, which is this, that the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. The same word of God that brings life to people, that 
that draws out their, their sin and confession and repentance as God chisels them more into the image of his son is the same word that hardens the hearts of many who reject the authority of, of Jesus and his word. What Jesus is communicating here is that he is unbelievably zealous for truth. And he's not away, uh, afraid to wage war against error and evil. And he could do so at any time. This is not just a, hey, there's coming a day when Jesus might, might break out the sword. If you look at the story of Balaam, he was killed by the sword, ironically. That Jesus didn't wait around until his final, final return to wage that war. That this should sober any of us who forsake the teachings of Jesus as authoritative truth. This should sober any of us who, who sin without bounds, who live uh, licentiously and bring others down that path with us. Because this is the language of you're not a Christian. Jesus is saying, I will come with the sword of judgment. There is no judgment or condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the language of check yourself and make sure that you're truly one of mine, that you're a sheep. It is Ultimately, fast-forwarding a picture of Jesus' return most certainly, that if you read Revelation, you go on to the end of the book. In chapter 19, we're told that as Jesus returns, that from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. That in other words, in order for us to live in eternal peace, Jesus has to wage war against evil. Like that's going to happen in order to, to establish a kingdom where you actually want to sleep at night without one eye open, known as the new heavens and the new earth, that Jesus is going to do that, that he's zealous for truth, that going back to Pergamum, in a land in which the sword was the symbol of Rome's total sovereignty, Jesus says, I'm the only sovereign here. The question for us is, are we zealous for truth like the sovereign king? Jesus says to the church that's zealous for truth at the expense of love, the church in Ephesus, he says, I'll shut you down. You won't be a church anymore. He says to the church that's zealous for love at the expense of truth, the church in Pergamum this morning, I'll wage war against you. And when I go to war, I don't lose. So I'm sobered this week by this text, big time. I'm sobered by the fact that I want to be a person who is both full of love and full of truth, and the issue on the table this morning is truth. And so can I do something super weird this morning? Can I invite you with me to, to recite a, a great creed of Christianity that we've adhered to for hundreds and hundreds of years, known as the Apostles' Creed. It, it's, it's a creed that links um, Christian evangelicals together from all streams, all denominations, all networks. And, and what I want to do is I don't want to read that to you. I want us as a church this morning, for those who, who will join me in this, to recite this as an affirmation that we believe these things, that we believe in the truth of who God is and in his gospel. And so there's no good way to do this and not be awkward. So I'm just going to jump in, and we're not super liturgical all the time around here. So I would invite you to just join me as I begin to say these words. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, 
the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. I think Jesus is pleased when we declare the truth of who we believe he is and what he's done for us. And, and here's even a big part of why I want us to do that. Not just because of the caution, the warning, but because of the commitment, the promise that Jesus gives us. As we close out this morning, we see a few things that he promises us. We're told in verse 17 that to the one who conqu- uh, conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And that's weird language, right? You're going, what does that mean? I, there's some other promises maybe he could hook me up with that would make a whole lot more sense to me. Than that. So, what is he saying? He's saying a few things. One, he's saying, I promise you eternal sustenance and satisfaction. That the language of manna alludes to the bread that fell from heaven for the Israelites in the wilderness, most certainly. It refers to um, the golden jar of manna, which was kept in the ark to remind the Israelites of God's provision after they were brought out of the wilderness. But ultimately, it refers to Jesus himself as the bread of life. You, you hear that, you go, how does that promise supposed to resonate with me? How is that supposed to bring comfort to me? Well, here's the truth. It means that for those who will cling to Jesus and the truth of his word, Jesus will be their sustenance forever. That, that we will never experience want because Jesus will sustain us perfectly, both spiritually and physically forever. That in the same way that eating brings physical satisfaction, Jesus will satisfy us forever that we're not right now capable of understanding the degree to which Jesus will captivate and enthrall our minds forever. You're gonna be eternally mind blown as a Christian. That you can't possibly understand with full capability the degree to which Jesus will overwhelm your affections forever. The degree to which Jesus will enrich your glorified resurrected body forever. The degree to which Jesus will satisfy your soul forever. That Jesus is saying, stop chasing after skirt steak. I'm offering you filet here, Christian. Like, that's the promise. The question for us is, why do we want skirt steak so badly? We're far too easily pleased, C.S. Lewis says. Our desires are too small. They're not too great. They don't need to be tempered. They need to be set right on, on the right object of affection. Isaiah 55, 2 says it this way. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Stop chasing after lesser things, Jesus says. I'm offering you eternal satisfaction, eternal bliss, eternal joy, eternal wonder, eternal pleasure. And he goes on to say, I will give you a white stone. And you go, who cares? There are rocks everywhere. Why does that matter? And the answer is this, because that stone represents something, that there were many uses of of white stones in the day, uh, this uh, first century Greco-Roman subculture, but the predominant one was that stones were used as tokens of, of admission for events, for festivals, for plays, for games. They functioned like a golden ticket, you might say. And so if you connect the dots to the promise of manna, What Jesus is likely saying here, and most commentators would agree, is that he's promising you a seat at the table of the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you read further in Revelation, in Revelation 19, you get these words. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. You just hear the people crying out. 
Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And listen to this. He goes on to say, And the angel said to me, this is John speaking, Write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That you get this picture of this great feast that you'll, you'll get to sit at the table and be a part of one day. This intimate communing with your king where you will be fully and ultimately satisfied if for no other reason than you're in his presence. That's unbelievable. I don't know about you guys, but thinking about a seat at that table makes me really happy. That's a dinner party I want to go to. Fascinatingly, the promise of the white stone uh, affirms that not only do we get entry in, but we get tagged with a new name, with a new identity that's included in that. Final question this morning, how does being given a new name bring us hope and comfort? I think um, Sam Storms, again, gives a good answer to that question. He says this, there's an identity you have in God reflected in your new name that transcends whatever shame or regret or disappointment is wrapped up in who you are now. He goes on to say, there's a very private and personal place of intimacy with him that brings hope and freedom and joy that none can touch or taint or steal away. That this new name, this new identity, it's yours because you are Christ. That's amazing. We're gonna take communion in a moment. If you're a Christian, this meal is for you. We take Communion here as a collective uh, declaration of who Jesus is and what he's done for us as we remember his broken body and shed blood. Uh, We take the bread here and dip it in the cup, the bread representing his broken body and the cup representing his shed blood. If you're a Christian, I would would implore you this morning to, to sit with the question, where am I in all of this in terms of um, the the piece of truth meeting love. Like, am I, am I one who is sacrificing love on the altar of truth? Am I, am I coming so hard at this thing that there's no way it can possibly be received well because I'm divorcing love from the whole process? It's no longer um, truth spoken in love. It's just truth for truth's sake. Or do you find yourself erring in the other ditch where um, it's sacrificing truth on the altar of love, that there's, there's a fear that love can't possibly be communicated if we actually adhere to the truth, um, which, which can't possibly be true because Jesus said himself, I am the truth. He's the embodiment of truth. Where are you in all of that? Prayerfully ask God to help, help you to be a person who walks both full of love and truth for the sake of King Jesus, making much of him everywhere you go. Pray that that God would work in us not to be the church in Ephesus, not to be the church uh, in Pergamum, but, but rather to be a church that is faithful in a way that he would commend us and would withhold the rebuke. That would be sweet, right? If you're not a Christian, my prayer this morning is that you would turn to Jesus, that you would see Jesus as the sovereign king, that as we encounter him every week, he says, I know what you're going through and I'm gonna engage that and I'm gonna describe myself in a way that can meet you right where you are. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E P
www.ptc.com. Thank you.